Good evening. Tonight's going to be a little bit different, so I won't be preaching a sermon. I'll be delivering uh, a talk, and uh, it's it's. Want to think about it as a theological, theological and apologetic, biblical, as well as systematic theology, and it deals with the nature of human dignity and the role of salvation history. So it has elements that we're going to see that coincide with. Uh, the teachings that we need to think about how humans relate, why God values us, and what God has done in our lives. So uh, that's what we're going to do tonight. So it'll be a little bit different in that sense. Uh, but let's pray, and then uh, we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, I thank you for your mercy and your grace. You're wonderful to us. We ask you, Lord, that you be with us. Help us grasp the things that we're going to be talking about tonight, Lord, and we pray that your truth would be forefront in our minds. May we be obedient to your word and your leading, which always coincides with your word, Lord. And we uh, just pray that you would help us consider this idea of human dignity, Lord, uh, that our eyes would be ever present upon you. As the psalmist says, Lord, that one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, in order that our eyes will be filled with your light, your beauty, and we may be able to love one another as you've loved us. May you glorify your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said, this talk is about human dignity, and so essentially it's the idea of what gives humans value and worth. Uh, Many times we grow up thinking that what gives us value and worth is what we do, your profession, your job, your looks, your intellect, what you do or don't have. And so those are the wrong places to find your identity and worth because those things are ephemeral. They change. They're not long-lasting, and they're not attached to the God who is, who is ultimate beauty, ultimate value. And so I want us to think about that because our culture is seriously confused about this, that attaches, at least right now, your value and your color. And you hear people talking about white man, black man, yellow man, blue man, and all this other stuff, and that's a problem. And so we need to find what is the source of human dignity? What is the source of value? Where does it come from? And so let's see what we see here. How many of you have driven past Victor Valley College on the way to Apple Valley? Never. Okay. May you fly because you're a pilot, but yes. But if you think about it, as you're driving down, have you seen the electric billboard on your left when you're going towards Apple Valley? What does it say? I mean, it says a lot of things, but what? Your life matters. That's a sign. And obviously it's there because suicide rates are up, depression is up, all these different things that we see are up. And so the school has to put out a sign that says your life matters. Is it true that our lives matter? Says who? Well, God, yes. But if it's Victor Valley College, why should we believe them? The educational system teaches subjective and relative truth, which means that something is not always true all the time. It changes and it's subjective, it's personal, right? So it's not really always true, right? So the problem is that if you make that kind of a claim, it has to be true. But if it's not always true, then what are you saying? You're lying because you can't ground it in anything. And it depends on who has power. And then they say, well, this person or this being has value and this person in group doesn't have value. So now what do you see? You see racism, you see eugenics, you see abortion, you see just the sacralization of human sexuality and everything else that we see, right? 
So the statement itself, your life matters, is either subjective or objective. It's either relative or absolute. When I say relative, it means that it changes. Subjective, it's based on preference. Objective, it's true, whether you and I believe it or not. It's always true. It's mind independent, which means it doesn't depend on your mind or my mind. It's true, whether we like it or not. And it's absolutely true. It's true all the time, not relatively so. It doesn't change with time or season or culture. But again, if that statement is subjectively true, which you see on the sign and the billboard over there, then it's not always true. So that what in the world are they saying? They're really saying nothing. It's going to change. It's going to depend. Our world doesn't believe in objective truth or absolute truth. At least it pretends not to only when it applies to them, when trouble and pain comes their way and now they really believe it. So in actuality, everybody does believe in objective truth and absolute truth. The application of it is what is disagreed upon. For example, not too long ago, I don't know if you guys heard of Jane Fonda. She's in her 80s right now. She was on The View. And so they were asking her, what do you think people can do apart from protesting because of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, right? It just means that the federal government is not going to support it, and it's unconstitutional. They can still go get abortions and murder their babies. Nobody's stopping them from doing that, which is a heinous sin, and for which America will be judged, all the bloodshed here. But they asked her, what else can be done? And uh, she said, I've thought of murder. And obviously she's talking about murder the protesters, the pro-life protesters, and then uh, one of the ladies kind of did a double take and says, what? what did you say? And the other lady said, oh, no, she's just joking. She's just joking. And it talked about how she was a, a, left-wing, pro, a left-wing activist and how she's going to get a Nobel Prize for, for you know, being who she is. And then later they went ahead and reached out to her and said, well, what were you talking about? Oh, it was just a joke. It was just a joke. But she was very serious. If you look at her face, she was very serious. So it seems like she's okay with murdering babies in the womb, which is supposed to be the safest place. And she's also okay with murdering those who support uh, defending life. So she's determining whose life value, whose life matters. But again, that's the question. Who, whose life matters? Why does your life matter? If it's according to her, your life doesn't matter. If you support pro-life, if you're for life and not death. And so we got to look at the sign at Victor Valley College and take it seriously, but we must answer the question, does your life matter? Does it have worth and dignity? And so that's what we're going to try to answer tonight. So what is dignity? How has dignity been understood and who or what determines or grounds dignity? That's what we have to answer. See, the notion of dignity carries much significance and it's been understood in various ways, but surely they can't all be correct. There may be elements of it that are correct, but they can't all be correct. There must be one that is completely right. They don't need to be all there. They need to be giving us the truth of the matter. We don't need a relative answer or nominal answer. That is just a name. We need a real answer, an answer that is unchanging, an answer that is objectively true, meaning that it's true again, whether one believes it or not. Listen to Bob Dylan's song titled Dignity and how it points to the longing for dignity. He writes this. He said, so many roads, so much at stake. So many dead ends, I'm at the edge of the lake. Sometimes I wonder what it's going to take to find dignity. Even in songs like that, it tells you that the heart longs for what gives me value, what gives you value. Again, is it popularity? Is it status? Is it what you have and don't have? Who you are, who you know? 
And we tend to believe the lie because we tend to identify by what we do. But if that's the case, what happens when you lose what you do? All of a sudden, your identity is lost and your dignity is gone. So we have to be careful with that. The word dignity or dignitas in the Latin arises from the term dignus, meaning worthy. The Oxford Dictionary and Merriam-Webster Dictionary gives similar answers for dignity. Dignity is defined as the, quote, the quality or the state of being worthy, honored, or esteemed. It's a high rank, an office, or a position, a legal title of nobility. Dignity, then, seems to be about worth, value, honor, and respect. In addition to these definitions, another way that dignity has been understood is the way one conducts oneself, that is, your behavior, your comportment. In one sense, one is said to have dignity if one behaves appropriately. A dignified person has proper manners and conduct in public. I remember my mom calling me out when I was misbehaving in public because I was embarrassing her. And uh, she would give me the look, you know, the look. She looks at you and says, Carlos, comportate con dignidad, which means, Carlos, behave yourself with dignity. Because I was embarrassing her, right? So in a sense, she was saying, behave in a dignified manner. You may hear this still kind of talk between a parent and a child if moral conduct is a high priority and discipline is in the family. It's interesting that dignity in this sense can be lost if one doesn't perform accordingly. But that's not the dignity that I'm talking about. But nevertheless, that's important because how you behave yourself does say something about your character and your worth. Granted, it's a good thing to act in a well-behaved manner, but the notion here, at least implicitly, is that a person can lose their dignity when they do or don't act in a dignified manner or maintain their worth when they conduct themselves in an undignified manner. Another way that dignity has been understood is it's been understood as social status. In this sense, dignity is something that some people have and others don't have. According to this understanding, dignity is contingent. It depends upon something or someone to give it to you. And we can see that in governments. We can see that in status, right? It's based on your social status, your reputation, be that economic status, family pedigree, the color of your skin, the letters behind your name, your profession, your accomplishments, the number of things you possess, and your ability to contribute to society, your function to society. It may be even something that is given to you by your government or group for which you are with which you identify. But here's the problem. If a social construct like this, something that we humans invent and give, what can happen to that? We can take it away. If you can give it, you take it away. And that's the problem. Dignity has also been understood and limited to freedom and autonomy, self-determination. Mel Lawrence wrote this. He says, Dignity is the right to do what you wish to do without interference from anyone else or the laws of the state. Dignity is self-determination. So we see this kind of talk more nowadays when you think about medical and bioethical issues. Usually this self-determination is associated with terminally ill persons seeking physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia. You know, you see this in abortion too. It's my right, my agency. I can do what I want with my body. This is that whole idea of self-righteous autonomy. The alleged phrase used to express self-determination as a moral right is death with dignity. So determination is not only limited to doing what one wants, but being or becoming what you desire. 
You can be all that you can be, not in the army anymore. You can be what you can be anywhere. In your home, out the home, you could look like me and claim to be a woman. Well, what is even a woman? What does it mean to a woman? Well, that's a bearded woman. That's an ugly woman right there, you know? I mean, that, that's it's crazy. So this whole idea of self-determination is nonsense. It's the autonomy, the lie from the garden. Self-determination is not just limited to doing what one wants, but again, like I said, to what one desires and believes. Would you ever send your kid if they can't sing to America's Got Talent? You can do whatever you want. Just believe. And the kid goes there and gets booed off the stage. Really? You just taught your kid to just believe the biggest lie in the world. If you love your kid, you won't tell them to do that. If they're not good singers, they're probably good at something else. So please don't lie to your kids. You know, these people are lying to the kids and all of a sudden they go and make a spectacle of themselves. It was Rene Descartes, the father of modernity, who described self-determination as this. He said, that which renders us like God in making us masters of ourselves. I'll read that again because this is what happened in the garden. Rene Descartes said, it is that, self-determination is that which renders us like God in making us masters of ourselves. Now, we can argue ideologically this resulted from the Enlightenment period. That's what we see. Man becomes the measure of all things. That's where we need no longer aided reason. We don't need God to tell us what we have around and explain things. We don't need God anymore to explain things. We are here in the age of reason, and reason is all that it will take us to get there. We can argue that in a sense. It's correct, but the origins go much deeper and much further. They go deeper as manifested in the Garden of Eden the moment that Adam and Eve decided to violate and disobey God's one and only prohibition. And lastly, and most importantly, dignity has been understood as worth, value, honor, and respect. That's the first one we talked about in terms of the dictionary definition, and that's where we're going to go with this. This view recognizes human dignity as being part of what it means to be human. Listen carefully. It recognizes that human dignity is part of what it means to be a human being or human person. While this may be true, we have to ask, why is it so? Is it simply because we are human? Does this value arise from within humanity itself or does it come from outside itself? We'll launch into this next section of the talk in the first notion, understanding that dignity lies best in the understanding of the biblical worldview. The Bible gives us the best understanding of what human dignity is. So here the main idea is that humans have value, worth, and dignity because it's derived from God and given to us. It's derived from God and given to us because God is the being of ultimate value. And because we're created in his image and because we're his, therefore we have value, dignity, and worth. But there's going to be a greater dignity and value and worth than that of creation, and that's going to be of salvation, which points to and leads to adoption as sons, which is the reason we see in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Think with me carefully. We have value and worth by being created in the image of God. All humanity does. But that dignity and worth is even escalated higher when you and I become sons and daughters of God. Because that's the purpose for which God sent the Son. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, the incarnation, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, for what purpose? In order that they might receive adoption as sons. You see what he did? He says, God had determined when the time would be perfect. And when he sent the son was a perfect time. That was a time. He sent the son who already existed eternally with the father and incarnated, became one of us. He who existed, pre-existed as son of God eternally, 
added humanity to himself. So you have one person with two natures, divine and human, the Redeemer, who was born of a woman under the law to redeem us who were under the law so that we would receive adoption as sons. You see the progression here? That is what's going to give us the greatest dignity and value and worth. Now, I'll read a few verses from the Bible so you can see what we have here in God and then where it leads us. So in Colossians chapter 115, I didn't put it on a slide, but just hear with me. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is Christ Jesus. And think about this. Here, for the first time in history, God himself comes and becomes one of his creations. So God, who is transcendent, is very much imminent, too. He is far, but yet he is near. And not just near like this way, but he becomes one of us. And this is amazing because Jesus is a prototype for humanity. What Jesus is, we are to become, minus divinity. We do not become divine, but we're united to divinity in the Son, which is amazing, crazy. No other belief system in the world gives you this. In Islam, it is unfathomable that God would have a son, that God would go to the bathroom, that God would die. God is completely transcendent, completely other. But yet in the Christian belief system, in the Christian worldview, God himself, the creator of all that exists, comes down and becomes one of us, isn't afraid to get dirty. He condescends to be one of us, to join us, And to die on the cross, which is deserving for the worst of sinners, yet he dies on that cross, only to be resurrected and glorified and exalted. And so you see that there's amazing. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We see here in 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In Colossians 3.10, we see, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In John 1, we see here, uh, this is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the end result of what we're going, right? And then you see here, this is pointing to the idea of adoption and the final glorification. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are, if you're a Christian, if you're saved. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So this is pointing to us in this grand story of redemption where it's going. And so I'll skip these other passages here, but what I want to go and show you this is now, because again, this is topic, the title is called Human Dignity in Salvation History, we have to see the four time periods or the four epochs of salvation history. And the four are creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Those are the four periods of salvation history. So if somebody asks you, how can you tell me the story of the Bible in a few words? That's the story of the Bible. God created, there was a fall, sends the Redeemer, and then he will fix all things. There it is. That's the story of the Bible. So creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And you'll see that human dignity hasn't changed. It's through and through. But we see how that has been corrupted because of sin. So first, we begin with creation. The God of the universe creates the universe, and everything contained therein. Energy, matter, time, space came into being by him. He created out of nothing. By his power, he speaks creation into existence. 
because God brings life into being from non-existence, it means that anything that is not in God's blessed presence fades away and dies. I was looking at our flowers on the, on, the de- on the table today, at the dining table, and when we got those roses, they were beautiful, they were red, they were lush, they smelled great, and it's been a, maybe a week or two now, and you can see that they're still connected to the water and the life source, if you will, but the flowers are fading, and they're getting, uh, they're getting not only cold, but they're getting wrinkled, they're starting to fall down, they're dry, and that's what we see in sin. When you're not connected to the life source, you die. God is the life source. To be away from the garden, man would eventually die. And that's why sin came in. That's what we see. So in the creation, we see what God has done. So to not be in his presence is to be in the absence of his presence, which is blessed. And anything away from his presence eventually dies. Now, God creates in this manner because it points to his awesome power, his providence, his sustaining power, his design, his purpose for creation. And then second, we hear the concept of the fall. We see how what God created disobeyed his one command and became infected, affected, and corrupted by sin. Sin is not just an action, but it's something that deeply infects us and corrupts us like a virus, like a cancer that kills. So all who are born thereafter are born in sin, are essentially dead on arrival, hellbound. This then is the bad news for which we need to hear the good news. This is the reason why redemption is such a sweet aroma to those who are made aware of their utter sinfulness, who are made alive of their wretchedness and helplessness. And it is only in admitting their sins and coming to the Lord and Savior when they can find redemption. And then we see the notion of the third aspect of redemption, where God sends the Son and the Spirit to redeem and reconcile that which was fallen and broken. This is the gospel, the good news for a darkened and broken world for sinful people. Redemption, in essence, restores us, reconciles us, and puts us back on the path for which we were created. And then finally, the notion of consummation. God will make everything right at the end. No more sin, no more tears, no more suffering, no more evil, no more suffering, but pure, endless joy beholding the beauty of the Lord in glory, reflecting His image perfectly in utter, shining, glorious light, in perfect fellowship and shalom with God our Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and with the brothers and sisters. Now, that was an overview of those four aspects, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Now, let's look at human dignity in each one of those. In this particular one, we see creation. We're going to see the picture of God touching Adam by Michelangelo. And we see the aesthetics of beauty here. But we see that God, the creator, creates humanity in the imago Dei, that is, in the image of God. So then, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? There's been many answers to the question And I won't waste too much time on the debates, but briefly stated, the scriptures are going to indicate to us here what it is. We won't delve too much into this. But in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, we read the following. There it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. There's the passage. So the image of God here carries within it the idea of reflecting God to the world just as the mirror reflects the image of that which is in front of the mirror. The image is supposed to reflect the one in whose image you were made. Like a mirror, we're supposed to reflect him, not ourselves. That is the purpose of the image, at least one aspect of the image. It also points to the dominion. That's very important, dominion. Not just the image 
of who we're supposed to represent, like diplomats, but it also points to the factor of the cultural mandate, which one part of it is dominion. And dominion here is that he gave Adam and Eve to control, have control over the creatures of the land, the sea, and the sky. As God's stewards, humanity has to rule in a manner that reflects God's rule. That is what it means to be made in the image of God as well. To rule in a manner that reflects God's rule. Not like a tyrant, but like God. And then there's a moral dimension to the image of God. Humanity is to be holy as God is holy. Be holy for I am holy. They are to do as God does and speak as if God is speaking through them. We see that in Corinthians. Additionally, the image points to relationality, the union and communion with one another, but especially with God. This is important to think about because it's talking about the relationality that we have to one another. He made them male and female. Together, they're the image of God. And as brothers and sisters, together we're the image of God. But then it shows relationship between us, but also relationship between humanity and God himself, at least those who are saved by God. Given that our God is one and triune, it follows that God is a personal relational being. There never was a time when the Father never had a son and the Holy Spirit by his side. It follows that mankind is a being in relation as well. This is also another reason why God said it was not good for man to be alone because man is supposed to be in relation with one another. Man needed to be a being and needed a being according to his kind, a, a like opposite. Man needed a woman. Man did not need another man because then you couldn't be fruitful and multiply. Woman did not need another woman because you couldn't be fruitful and multiply. Man needed a woman so that they both together could multiply and have dominion over the earth. That's the cultural mandate. That's what we're supposed to do as image bearers. Additionally, creation implies distinction, ownership, telos, which means design and purpose. By distinction, I mean that God and his creation are not the same in category. That's why God created The creation is not identical with God. It's made by God for his glory, but we're not identical with God, which is different from Hinduism. The creation is not divine. God is divine. God is not a local presence. You can't point to say, here is God. God is omnipresent, but yet he's very present within you in the Holy Spirit, but yet he's everywhere. But he's not all things. God is God. He's not his creation. God is omnipresent, present everywhere by virtue of his immensity. His presence extends everywhere. There is no place that is not his, nor where he cannot be found. We read this about in Psalm 139. God is spirit. The creation is physical, limited, and localized. God has life in himself. He is the very source of life. We are contingent. We depend on God for our existence. If God didn't exist, neither would we. God is the creator, and we are the created. This shows ownership. God owns us. This then leads me to the point that I want to make, namely, that because humanity has derived dignity, which has been bestowed upon us by God, this is the point. Humanity, this is the point we need to think about. Your value and dignity and worth doesn't come from you just being a human. There's something to that, but it points like C.S. Lewis. There's signposts pointing back to God. The flowers are beautiful, but the flower ought not to be worshipped. The world is beautiful, but it ought not to be worshipped. Humanity... Is beautiful, but it ought not to be worshipped. It points back to God. So in thinking about this, because God is the source of all glory, honor, praise, and adoration, he deserves all glory, praise, honor, and adoration. Humanity, therefore, has derived dignity, and therefore is essential to him because God put it there. 
This is why it is wrong to murder the baby in the womb or to murder yourself. Whether it's young, middle, or at the deathbed, you want to die with dignity. That is why it is wrong to treat human sexuality any other way than God said. Premarital sex, outmarriage, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, anything else. God gave us the parameters of how we ought to live and the purpose for which he created us. This is why rape is wrong, because you violate the right of another human being to their body, and it is wrong because it is sinful. It's hurting another individual. This is why racism is wrong, because he created us all individually unique and different spices. Imagine if you said, uh, soy sauce rice is wrong. It's nasty. It's terrible. Don't eat it. Only eat Spanish rice. David, you can't write East rice. Pilaf, you got to eat risotto. You know How ridiculous would that be? The different rices add flavor to this, right? So different spices. And I think that's the beauty about humanity, that he gave us different ethnicities, different colors, so we can appreciate one another. But that's not where your dignity and worth lies. It's not in your color. It's in whose you are by virtue of creation and also by virtue of being a child of God. That's where your dignity comes from. Now, let's move to an example, physical example, to think about this. Look at this popular painting here, the next one that follows right there. Can you tell me who that is on the screen? There's two people there. Tell me who the lady is. La Mona Lisa. And the one on the left? Who, made, who painted La Mona Lisa? Jamie, you know the answer to this. You're right. It's Leonardo da Vinci. Very good. Thank you. So this popular painting, I'm pretty sure everybody knows, right? The woman is called La Mona Lisa. It's an oil-based painting of a woman said to be named Lisa del Giocondo. My Italianos. <laughs> oh, no, that was French. That was in Italiano. Its hands, it, it, it's in the actual museum in Paris. I think it's called Lovre. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But Leonardo da Vinci is a famous painter who completed the Mona Lisa in 1517. Now, without looking up online, can you tell me how much this painting is valued? Throw some numbers out. 300, 3 million? Okay, 3 million. Anybody else? Sold to you. No. So it's currently valued over $908 million. $908 million. It's not that big either. Why in the world does this painting have that kind of value? Is it not made with oil and wood on canvas? I mean, look at that. You can get these pieces at a hardware store. I mean, you can get a piece of canvas for, what, 15 bucks? Some brushes for 10 bucks. If you go to 99 cents, you can get them for 99 cents. Maybe $1.07 with tax. These are just a few dollars at the local store next door, right? Now, ladies and gentlemen, the reason why this painting costs the way it does is because it was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Think about this. He was an Italian polymath, which means he was good at a lot of different subjects. He was learned in many disciplines. He was a Renaissance man in the high Renaissance period. He was a painter, David, an engineer, a scientist, a theorist, a sculptor, an architect, not to mention one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Leonardo. <laughs> so what does this tell you about value and worth? Value is derived by being connected or united to someone who is highly esteemed or known to be a person of dignity. Here's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Think with me. If it's true that the painting of Leonardo da Vinci has value and worth because it's connected to him and he's a popular man, how much more it is of 
what value is yours because whom you're attached to and created by. That painting by Leonardo da Vinci has a stamp and seal. Whose image is on you? God's image is on you, and therefore God being the most infinite valuable being, you therefore have infinite valuable being by derived from God. So therefore your life is valuable. Your life does matter, not because Victor Valley College says so, but because God says so, because God made you. He is the greatest architect, the greatest artist who ever lived and will ever live. He is infinitely valuable, and therefore your life it matters. This God is the great architect, the great artist, the author and finisher of our faith, the grand storyteller, the I am. Thus, because we are his creation and have his signature, his image on us, we have a worth that is beyond, far being compared to anything in the created order, animals, trees, anything. We have inherent dignity, value, and worth because God made us. Listen to the psalmist marvel at this grand truth in Psalm 8, 3 through 4 and 9. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. This is what we were made for. We are created to have union and communion with God our maker. We are made in the image of God to reflect his glory to this world. In the same way that the creation declares God's glory, we being part of that creation and the pinnacle, the highest part of his creation, are to be living in a dignified manner, being holy as he is holy. We were created for fellowship with God. This is not only true of us with God, but also to have fellowship with one another. This is the only way to be truly happy and to be able to flourish. But sin threw in a wrench. Sin threw in a wrench. Now we move to our next slide, and that's about the fall. And here you see that um, Adam and Eve are cast away from the presence of God, and the angel is guarding the, 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 the entry to Eden. And so here we see that when Adam and Eve sinned, they went against God's intended design. If they would have obeyed, they would have had eternal happiness and would have never experienced the fear, the guilt, and the shame of their transgression. They would have never had to hide from God. How many times do you hide when you do something wrong or lie about it? But when you lie once, you have to lie again to cover that other lie. Sooner or later, it will be exposed. Might as well just own up to it. They would have never had to hide from God. They would have never had to experience pain and sorrow. The pain and sorrow of losing their first son because of their one sin. Think about that. The pain and sorrow of losing their very son, Abel, to their other son, Cain. So here's where we see the human dignity kind of thrown down in the drain because of the tarnishing of what sin does to our understanding, our mind, our will, our desires. If they would have just listened to God and have obeyed God, they would have been in utter bliss at God's right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. Now listen to this. I'm quoting a, a pagan philosopher, but he has something good to say here. This is Aristotle. He gives us a glimpse into virtues and vices telos, purpose, and flourishing. It's fascinating how much God revealed to this man, but yet he was so far from the truth too. This man yet remains alienated from God and is in Adam as well. But Aristotle spoke of virtues and the doctrine of the means. By virtues, Aristotle meant living in according to the nature, the design and purpose for which you were created. 
that was what we were supposed to live. He figured this out, and he's right. When you live according to the design for which you were supposed to live, you will be happy. You will be flourishing. That's why you were made. Live in line. Stay in your lane, and you will do fine. Get out of your lane, and you'll hit an oncoming semi. Right? So stay in your lane. That is, be holy for God is holy. Now, think about this, for example. I learned this from one of my teachers, and he gave this example, and he said, the virtue of something is determined by the purpose for which it was made, right? You can say something or someone is virtuous if they act according to the way they were made. Think about a truck. A truck is virtuous when it does what it's supposed to do. So let's think about what are some components that are going to make a truck virtuous if we use that definition. It needs a... It needs an engine, but not just an engine. What kind of an engine? Maybe a diesel to be able to pull some heavy load, right? What else do you need? Did somebody say chassis? You need a good frame. You need good tires, right? You need some power in that truck. And you need a bed, whether short or long, depending on what the job you want to do. If the truck fulfills all those qualifications, you have a virtuous truck. If the truck doesn't fulfill those qualifications, you don't have a virtuous truck. You with me? So the point is that the truck is designed for something, and when it functions according to that, then you can get the job done and you're happy, right? You got all that concrete into your backyard, and you were able to get rid of all that dung in the back, right? All right, so that's a picture of getting rid of sin. So get rid of sin. Get a, get a truck. All right. So the point is that if, if it does function according to its purpose, then it will work fine. So he said that for a person to be a good person, a virtuous person, they need to exhibit virtues. The four virtues that he talked about were courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. Those are good virtues. You've got to add some more to that, but they're good. So courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. He goes on to say that if a person is living virtuously, that person will experience happiness. Anything or anyone who goes against their created nature will not be happy. Now, for example, when he talked about the doctrine of the means is this. Think about the idea of courage. If you are a courageous person, you will be right in the center of the bell curve. If you're right below the courage factor, this is the middle, you will be considered what? If you don't meet the line of courage, you're a coward. So below the line is not living virtuously. You should be a virtuous man, virtuous woman, a uh, uh, Courageous person. If you go beyond courage, what do you have? It's an overzealous person who thinks too highly of themselves. It's a hot-headed person now. It's a problem. That's not virtuous either. The doctrine of the means, stay in your lane, stay in the middle. If you function according to that, you will be flourishing and happy. That's what God calls us to do, to stay in our lane, to function courageously for Him, to obey and listen to Him. Anytime we go to the left or to the right, you have a problem. You have to stay on the path. It's the same thing He was telling us here. So even though anyone in Adam is guilty and corrupted, they nevertheless retain their dignity. Think about this. The fall did cause problems. We see that it brought about sin, pain, suffering, murder, the first murder, right? But even though that's the case, the image is stained and tarnished, but it has not been removed. Humanity still retains the dignity that God gave it when he first created humanity. It stays. It doesn't leave. And this is what we read about in Paul's letter. Paul tells us this many times. Now, listen to Athanasius of Alexandria when he said this. Quote, For the transgression of the commandment returned them to their natural state, so that just as they not being came into being, meaning those who did not exist began to exist, 
so that they might rightly endure in time of corruption unto non-being. What he's saying is, he's unpacking creation ex nihilo. He's saying this, humans came into existence by God's power and consequence. So humans came into existence by the power and consequence of God. But then by using their freedom, they relinquished their freedom. They chose to sin against God. And this goes along with what God said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So they, God created them out of nothing, right? And now they came to exist, and they depend upon him. But the moment that they rebel, they're no longer living in dependence to him. So he kicks them out of the garden, so now you're going to die. Again, why? Because you're not connected to him. You're not with him. That's why God said, the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And he kicked them out. So what happens next is that humanity is cast out from the blessed and life-giving presence of God. Those who were once near have now become alienated. Union and communion, one of the reasons for which they were created, has been severed. So does this mean that the image is destroyed? It doesn't. By no means. It simply means that every aspect of what it means to be a human person is now infected, corrupted, and affected by the curse of sin. Even though the image has been tarnished, it still retains the value and worth given to it by God by virtue of who God is. Remember, that the image and its value remains is clearly evident in the consequence of one person taking another person's life. In Genesis 9.6, it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. So again, the dignity remains. But what follows is very interesting. Every single human being born thereafter, by virtue of being united to Adam, is a sinner enslaved to sin. This, therefore, complicates things because we're no longer operating in the manner for which we were created. Think about it. Adam and Eve use their freedom to get rid of their freedom. Sin enters the picture. Cain, who's supposed to love his brother, kills his brother, Abel, and sin spreads to all, even including the earth, which is affected and corrupted. The earth is waiting for its redemption when the sons of God are redeemed. So human dignity is trampled because humans have separated themselves from God. They erroneously think that they can and either determine the value of their worth or create it. And therefore, another human being ends up giving or taking away their value. And they have an infatuation with their own value and worth. And the process, and in the process, they deify themselves to become gods of their own lives. They think they do, but they don't. That's the lie of autonomy. Sin affects our view of dignity, and we tend to go to extremes of deification, defamation, desacralization, or dehumanization. We either think that we're gods now, we either talk smack about other humans, we either treat humanity like crap, or we tend to treat humans as subhuman because of sin. Now, think about this. Think of two examples with me here. The first one comes from an Eastern system of thought, and uh, there may be a slide up here that shows uh, the slide of the caste system in India. And here we have in the Hindu system, this is what I want you to see, what happens because of sin and human dignity. First, take a look at the Eastern system of thought, the Hindu Varna or the Jati system. To us in the West, it's known as the caste system. According to the worldview there, there's a hierarchy in which every person is born into already. There are four categories that are part of the medieval caste system, and there's a last category that doesn't even make it into the caste system because it's so low. The highest and most dignified, if you will, are the Brahmin. They're comprised of the priests and the scholars. They're the top of the line. The second level are the warriors, the administrators, and the kings. Then you have the third, known as the level of the merchants, the landowners, and the farmers. 
And then the fourth level is called the shudra, which are the commoners, the servants, the laboring class, like us. And finally, those are those that don't even make the cut. They're called the dalit or the untouchables. These are the ones who Mother Teresa was ministering to in Calcutta. These are the untouchables. You dare not touch them because they're not worthy of anything. Their dignity has been lost. You see, this system removes human dignity from the get-go based upon their value, social worth, and everything. So they are excluded from the caste because their family lineage, their occupation is alleged to bad karma. They're the street sweepers, the butchers, the ones who clean the latrines. Everyone here is born into their level, and there's no way to alter it. You cannot, die. You cannot get out of it. Even if you get rich, you're still in that same level. It doesn't matter. You're born into it, into it you die. This is what the system does. The further one goes down, the less value, dignity, respect, and worth one has. And so they're treated like dirt. They're treated like the scum of the earth. Then, you know, there have been countless megalomaniacs, dictators who have dehumanized humans, countless of humans under their reign. One example comes to us from Europe. This is the other side of it, right? In this system, they're born like that. In this system of government, this person gains power and gets to decide who has value, who doesn't have value. And I'm talking about Adolf Hitler. So Adolf saw the Jewish people as a problem. He, de- he, see- he deemed them to be an inferior race, and therefore he needed to eradicate the world from them. He needed to eradicate them from the world and society. He said it was necessary. In 1919, he defined the Jewish people not as a religious group anymore, but as a race, and he said that their presence was the race tuberculosis of the people. He called them the race tuberculosis of the people. He wrote this, quote, The ultimate goal must definitely be the removal of the Jews altogether, end quote. So when he took power, not, I'm going to go on a little segue, but I'm going to come back. Think about this very importantly. Whenever a leader tells you what they're going to do while they're running for office, if they get into office, they're going to do it. The people knew what Adolf Hitler would say. He wrote it in his writings. He campaigned on it. Did people think he was joking? Look what he went and did. It's the same thing with this. That's why it's very important that as a citizen, you do your duties to think about the right people, not the person, but the values that line up more with the Judeo-Christian worldview. Okay, I'll come back just to make think about that. Now, upon taking power, he took it upon himself to blame the Jews for the problems of Germany to teach racism, to teach anti-Semitism in the schools. He attacked the Jews at Dresden in 1933. And in 1935, in the Nuremberg Laws, he actually removed their citizenship and their civil rights. He removed the rights and the citizenship of the Jews in Germany. And therefore, they were treated as subhuman, essentially as non-persons. There could be no intermarriage with Jews. You couldn't marry Finally, in the Kristallnacht, or the Night of the Broken Glass on November 10, 1938, which was the catalyst that would unleash Hitler's wrath upon the Jewish people, riots ensued overnight against the Jewish people. 7,000 Jewish shops, homes, synagogues were burnt down. 20,000 Jews were arrested and sent to concentration camps. It is estimated that 6 million Jews were exterminated in the Holocaust. And it wasn't only the Jewish people he saw as a problem, but anyone who was not a purebred German. He killed 85% of Germany's gypsies. He sterilized black people. He killed mentally ill patients and sterilized the physically disabled, those who were deaf, and people with hereditary diseases. His philosophy was that some races were untermenschen, which means subhuman. They weren't human. They were an inferior race. When a human being 
a human person is seen as subhuman, what follows? All kinds of evil are perpetrated in the name of progress. So because of the fall, humans are seen as mere objects to be used for a particular end. Be it human trafficking, prostitution, pornography, racism, eugenics, abortion, gender reassignment surgery, and the list goes on. This is what happens to human dignity under the fall and when it is not guided by the biblical worldview. The image has been tarnished but not lost. Not too long ago, at least back in June or July, I can't remember exactly when, some people got into the museum where the Mona Lisa was and they had a, a I think it was a, a pie made out of whipped cream and they went and threw it at the Mona Lisa good thing is that it was protected by glass, right? I mean, if you would look far away, you would think that it's tarnished, but it's, it's only tarnished. It's only stained from the outside. And it does have some stains because of wear and tear and different things and humidity. But that's the thing. Your dignity is still there even though the image is tarnished. It's not gone. So dignity remains. It was started in creation and it stays. In the fall, Dignity is still there, but because of the corruption and infection of sin, now we see humanity differently, and so we tend to be racist, we tend to be jerks to other people. If we don't like their music, the way they look, the way they study, if they believe different than us, then we treat them in a less dignified manner. That's a problem. I'm not necessarily saying people here, but you know, humanity as a whole. And that's the problem, and so we see that sin affected. Now we move to the next section, next section in the salvation history. We move from creation, fall, redemption. Here's where Christ comes, the only Redeemer. And here we have the incarnation. Himself, God is with us. And in this picture, we have the picture of the prodigal son coming in, and that's redemption. He who was lost comes back. And here's where we see the gospel taking place in the fullness of time when it comes In John's prologue, we get a glimpse where the incarnation begins. Here, we see in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. You see, in in the Godhead, in the Trinity, there is distinction. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the Greek, it's more impactful because it said that God was the Word. In English, it says, and the Word was God. In the Greek, it says God was the word. So we're seeing something here very much important. There's a distinction. We see that the Trinity here, at least the Father and the Son. So there's distinction. The the word was with God and the word was God. This points to the notion that God who shares, that the God who shares in the divinity with the word is with the Father. The word itself is the Son who shares the same divine nature. That's why Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He doesn't say, I and the Father are the same person. He says, I and the Father are the same kind of thing that is God, divine. And that's why the Jews wanted to stone him because they knew that he claimed that God was his Father. Therefore, they knew he was claiming to be God. So we're going to go somewhere with this. Just bear with me. So we see that he was claiming to be God in that sense. But here what we see here, the creation, the Son that was sent, in verse 14 we read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only one from the Father full of grace and truth. So for the first time in history, as I said before, we see that the creator and his creation, in this case, Jesus, coming together in what points to the life that humanity was intended to be a part of. In Jesus, the fullness of deity, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. God was not afraid and so was not so transcended that he would not condescend to take upon flesh. For what reason did the eternal Son take upon flesh? What John tells us in verse 18, 
No one has ever seen God. The only God is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The eternal Son added a human nature to his divine nature in order to reveal the Father to us, in order to be the second Adam, in order for our redemption. So what purpose? To restore the Imago Dei to its rightful place, the image of God. Jesus then is true humanity. Jesus is what we were designed to become. Jesus is the prototype of what we were designed to become. Jesus is human. Therefore, we see that in Jesus, that's who we're supposed to be like. It says Jesus is true humanity. Jesus is what we were designed to become. All in Adam will die, but all in Adam and all in Jesus will live. So take a moment to ponder this grand truth that the God of the universe, who would not only visit us and move into the neighborhood for a moment, but he forever was Dale's homo, the God-man. In Jesus, we see humanity in divinity and perfect peace, perfect shalom, perfect unity. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Jesus is the key to understanding the mystery of humanity. That God would take upon flesh does not only demonstrate that he cares for his creation, for humanity, but that humanity does have value and worth and is worth saving for his name's sake. He gave it that value, and he's not going to let the devil have the last word by introducing sin and by Adam and Eve obeying him instead of God. God is going to save that which is his. So God pays the greatest compliment to humanity by becoming one of us. And for what reason? John Calvin put it like this. He, Jesus, put on flesh, became one of us, in order that becoming son of man, he might make us sons of God with him. Now that is huge. Think about that again. He said, Jesus put on flesh in order that becoming the son of man, human, he might make us sons of God with him. He's already the eternal son of God, and to be united to the son is to make you a son of God. Now we see this idea of redemption applied. So how does redemption start and how is it accomplished? It starts in eternity past. Not that it's in actuality, but that God plans it in, actu- in, 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 in eternity. In Ephesians we read, in Ephesians 1 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Past tense. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Who chose us? God chose us. When? Before he created anything that we should be holy and blameless before him. Think about it. He chose you not because you're cool or I'm cool. No, we're not at all. We're dirty, rotten sinners, vipers and diapers. Right? He chose us to be holy and righteous like him. Those who are his must be about the father's business. Those who are his must be like the son. He says that. He says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Right? We become sons through Christ Jesus because he is the son and the father adopts us. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It points back to him. Again, it points back to him. So we have dignity here even to the greatest extent. So Jesus, having died on the cross and risen from the grave on the third day, is crowned with glory and honor. He who humbled himself and took upon flesh and died died a death of a sinner, having been sinless, died the most painful and insulting, degrading, dehumanizing, and undignified manner for all to see. The Son of the Blessed One lived in humiliation only to be exalted on the cross and upon the resurrection from the dead. 
The wrath of God was satisfied and all who place their trust on Jesus will be saved. Jesus reverses the curse and brings the journey to our restoration. See, we have been given life from above by the Holy Spirit. That is regeneration. You don't do it. He does it. He adopted you. He makes you born again. He brings you into the family. We've been given a new heart, new desires, a new love. We who were once far off because of the fall, we could not walk with God. Now God, not only living in our midst, but in ourselves as, as it were, because of the Spirit. Now the Apostle Paul gives us the reason for which, why the eternal Son took upon flesh. And we already talked about this in Galatians chapter 4, 4 to 7. But we see there that he did this in order to make us alive. He reconciled us, forgave us, and adopted us into the family of God in order that we will become children of God. So this is pointing to, again, to our adoption. Adoption, then, is rooted in eternity past, accomplished in the present, and materialized in the future. Let me say it again. It is rooted in eternity past, as we just heard about in Ephesians. God planned it. It wasn't happening yet, but it happens when you believe. Then it is accomplished in the present. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, present tense. And then it will be materialized in the future, we see in Romans chapter 8, when we shall be revealed as the Son of God, the sons of God. It is already in actuality now, but we wait with eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. So does the earth. Listen to what Cyril of Alexandria says in terms of this. He says, But those who rise to divine sonship through faith in Christ are baptized, not into anything originate, meaning to something that was created, but are brought into the Holy Trinity itself, meaning to say union, in that familial union. It's of through the Word who is the mediator. He joins what is human to himself, the incarnation. See, God himself joins what is human to himself through the flesh that was united to him, and he is joined by nature to the Father since he is by very nature God. In this way, the slaves ascend to sonship through participation in a true son since they are called, and so to speak, raised to the honor that is of the Son by nature. What he's saying is, listen to that, the Son became one of us, and being God, he was united to that nature. And when we're united to that nature, we get to share in that sonship. We get to share in being sons of God and to share in that relationship we see in that love that the Father has for the Son from all eternity. It is not just temporary love. It's an eternal, everlasting love that is far beyond comprehension. Not the love for the world, but the love for His Son in which you and I share. So tell me if that's not dignity that you see right there. Created by God with dignity, only to have that dignity tarnished and trampled by humanity who sins, but to be restored by Christ who is redeeming that humanity in the image of God. And at the end, we'll see what he does. And so we see that this is what we were called to. We were adopted that we might become like Jesus in all things except divinity. So with that, what does that point us to? That is the idea here of redemption. And then the final aspect is consummation when God makes all things right. So what has God created in the beginning with dignity? Because of who he is, continues all the way through. But in our glorification, in the eschaton, at the end, when he makes all things right, that's the fourth part, consummation, all accounts will be settled. Everything will be rendered correctly. God is justified, God is glorified, and he's glorified, and we are glorified with him. We're reigning with Christ. How much dignity is in that? Human dignity in the salvation history from creation through the fall, redemption, and consummation. 
It doesn't go down and disappear. It goes like this and then it goes up. So humans have value and dignity and worth because God made us in his image. But as believers, as children of God, you've been dignified far beyond measure. You've been called to a great task. There is nothing that we cannot do for Christ. We are called to be active citizens. We are called to spread his word. We are called to do something. We are called to be holy for he is holy. He prepared works in advance for us to do. And so what now? So we are supposed to recognize human dignity regardless of sin. So when you see that homeless person who's doing drugs, don't look at him as a person with less dignity. Obviously, you don't have to give him money so he can go get high. You give him food or you help him and you help him get back on his track. You tell him about Jesus. When you see the prostitute who's there, maybe she's not there because she wanted to be there. And most of the time, they're not. They're there because they're brought into that kind of human trafficking and they're mistreated and dehumanized. Think about it. It explains to all aspects of life. When you see certain people that look different from you and believe something different, because of sin, we see things differently, but we know the grand story of human dignity. Or maybe you've been hurt by somebody that's close to you, and therefore they make you angry, and so therefore you devalue and dehumanize them and make them subhuman. Well, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus looked upon us and had compassion and mercy upon us. And so as children of God, we're supposed to be like Christ. So we're supposed to live according to the purpose for which God created us. We're supposed to share the gospel of Christ because it's the only answer to our human predicament, the human problem. Christianity is the only view that understands and grounds human dignity because it is absolutely true that God made you with value and worth. That's why life matters. It doesn't matter what Jane Fonda says. She's tripping like a villain on penicillin. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. What matters is what God says. And speak up and do something about the indignity we see. Right? If you believe this, then you have to live accordingly. You can't be below the mean, the doctrine of the means, right? Courageous. You can't be overly and be dumb about this and hard-headed. You can't be a chicken either. You've got to stand in the middle because why did, the, why did God send the Spirit? Jesus said when the Spirit comes upon the disciples, they would be having strength and valor to go and spread the gospel, right? God himself lives in you. Think about that. This is crazy. I felt like a... I felt like a skeleton saying, Nacho, listen to me. This is crazy. But this is really crazy. Think about it. When God himself came and became one of us, right? We see here the manifestation of Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 14 and then through 18. God became one of us, took on flesh. God enters into a human and becomes a human, Jesus. You and I, God sent the Spirit. So now God is in us almost in the same way. But think about this. Is, this is not heretical, but think about it. I'm not saying we're all many Jesuses, but think about this. God himself comes, and if you're a believer, God is in you. So go and do the work that he sent us to do. Jesus said in the way, same way that the Father sent me, I send you, receive the Spirit. And that's why Jesus ascended, and he was ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father. At Pentecost, he sent the Spirit, Right? And that's what would unleash the work of the Spirit and the work of the gospel and evangelism. And that's when the apostles would have strength to go to all nations and preach and teach and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit and to teach them to do, command them to do everything that he's commanded them to do. So because you have the Spirit, we're supposed to do this. We have the right moral compass. We're supposed to live rightly. If there is sin in your life, repent of it, be, own it up, and start over. God forgives you. You forgive others. In the same way that God forgives you, you forgive others. Don't see others as less dignified. All human beings, no matter if they're evil or not, have dignity and worth because they're made in the image of God. 
And so share the gospel with them and speak up when you see indignity, recognize the value regardless of sin, and live according to the purpose for which God made you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for giving us this time, for blessing us with the truths that we find in your scriptures, Lord, and knowing that it is only you, Lord, who are true, beautiful, wonderful, merciful, just, and that you, Lord, would actually send your Son to become a human, Lord, to add another nature to himself, to be the God-man forever, to live a life that we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died, and to rise again to satisfy your the debt that we owe to you, Lord, and that you sent the Spirit to be in us. What a privilege, Lord, that you have sent your Spirit to live in us, these earthly vessels made of clay, and that you have brought to life, Lord. Help us never be cocky, but help us also not be chicken, Lord. Remind us that you're with us. You've told us, I mean, in this Old Testament, you told, uh, I believe, Joshua, you said, do not be dismayed, or be, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But not only are you with us, you're in us. And so, Lord, help us remember that. Help us remember that we were far off and you brought us near, and that you are the ultimate the most beautiful being there is, and therefore humanity is created in your image. So Lord, help us live lives that glorify you. Help us live dignified lives. Lord, help us live lives that resemble Jesus, and we are to live in a way that is glorifying to you. For you've told us, be holy, for I am holy. Help us live that way, Lord. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.